Some days are terrible. You wish that you were dead, and some days are magical, like grape banana bread. Someday we'll be friends with the voices in our heads. The voices in our heads. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Voices in Our Heads. Sorry, I was jawsercising. Hi, guys. How you doing? Welcome to the Voices in Our Heads. I'm your host, Christina Marie Hutchinson. Congrats on not killing yourselves. Fart machine's back. <laughs> oh my god, what a what a what a time to be alive. You know, it's so funny. All these religions are so concerned about going to hell when hell is right here on earth. You know what I mean? That's why we have to create a heaven in our heads and in our hearts and inside our homes. Okay? That's what I'm trying to do. Because let me tell you something. There is life after death. I have proof. I'll talk about that on a later episode. Okay. I have some stuff coming up that I want to tell you about. Um, things that you can watch me do that are that are new for me, I guess. I don't know. Well, one of them is this first one. Thursday. This Thursday. So tomorrow. January 21st. It's 7 o'clock on the East Coast time. Okay, the best coast time. No offense, California. Love you to death. Okay. And Portland. And West Coast. Shut up. Um, my pal and chef Ashanti is going to help me, uh, or is going to teach me how to cook a dinner on Instagram live at 7 PM, uh, tomorrow. And, uh, if you go on my Instagram, it's at Christina Hutch. Okay. K-R-Y-S-T-Y-N-A. Not spelled the other way. No, no, no. Didn't make that up. My mom did. Well, she didn't make it up. Somebody she met once did. Anyway, she, Ashanti's going to teach me how to cook dinner. It's turkey meatballs, and she's making um, vegetables, but I'm making mashed potatoes because I'm like, give me the mashed potatoes. I want starch. (laughs) (laughs) So if you want to watch us cook live uh, on Instagram, do that. And the recipe's on my feed. So just go to my profile, and you can see the recipe if you want to cook along with us. It's turkey, so don't pour blood on me if you're a pita person or a vegan. Sorry. Not to say that you're all like that, but a lot of you are, and I don't hear the ones that aren't speaking up about it, okay? It's weird. Sunday, January 24th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I paired up with a pal named Dennis, who is a director and an editor. We made a short, not a short film, I don't want to call it a short film because I want to get your expectations real low, because it's not, it's not dwell, but it's something very special. So Dennis came up with this term, a tiny film. And I was like, oh, my God, that's like exactly what this is. So I have a, we have a tiny film. I was going to call it a digital short, but that's SNL already uses that term. And I'm like, we can be original. Come on. We just got to think a little harder. And Dennis was like, OK, I'll do it. And I'm like, thank you, because I'm tired. So, yeah, um, it's called Happy Corona Birthday, directed by Dennis. It's starring me and Kevin McAllister Hutchinson. Yes, Kevin has made, is making his film debut, and I gotta say, pretty much the entire film, it's just nine minutes. It's me and Kevin. And he's so good in it. He did exactly what we wanted him to do. And it's not, I'm not like, not saying there's like, you know, crazy tricks, but we needed him to eat something at a certain time and grab the, and he did it. Man, dogs really love food, huh? I gotta open this closet door. I'm beclimped. 
So that's pr- we're doing a premiere, a watch party this coming Sunday at 8 p.m. on Twitch. Okay. There's so many goddamn platforms, and you know what? I accept all of them, okay? I'm just going to stop bitching about it and stop being an old lady because I'm young and fun, and I'm going to go on Twitch, uh, twitch.tv slash Christina Hutch. But if you go on my social media, specifically my Instagram, I'll be posting the hell out of that link on Sunday in my stories. So come watch this little tiny film with us, and then... Dennis and I are going to do a Q&A afterwards. I don't really know what the fuck questions you'd have. It's just, this film is just a sweet little, ugh. I just wanted to make something sweet, you know? No crying, no politics, just something sweet about a gal and her puppy, okay? So if you're in the mood for something wholesome as fuck, you're not going to see any holes in this movie. Talking about politics and pussies. Uh, and then Saturday, February 13th, we're going to fast forward to February. At 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Corinne Fisher and I are doing a live version of Did That Help for an online, I guess you can call it kind of venue, like a little online show, called Rush Ticks, T-I-X. Um, the link for those tickets, there's a limited amount, is on my website. But you can participate in that one. You can ask Corinne and I questions and get our advice, and we'll give it to you. We lo- I love giving advice. And I love that our listeners have a fucking sense of humor. Whew, I love it because usually in stand-up just in general when you're doing stand-up comedy I gotta say you know I'm always team chick but the men have a mu- men are much better sports but maybe that's because they grew up in a society that encourages them to be whatever they want <laughs> I don't know maybe it's that no 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 anyway um, hey you know what guys it's been a minute Let's do some fuckboy theater. Okay, we're gonna do some fuckboy theater because I got a DM from this guy, from this girl, about this guy. I don't know what app this is on. It's screenshots from a dating app, and it's this guy's profile. I guess it said he likes you. This guy likes you. And, you know, looking at his profile picture, he's fine. He's okay. He's in a suit at a wedding, clearly, because he has a one of those little mini roses on his thing. I don't I forget what it's called. It's a corsage, okay? Sometimes I think of stuff as I say it. Um, he's single, straight, man, monogamous. This is all the things it says in his profile. Six foot tall, average build. I could tell by that photo, even though it's only chest up. He's white. He's white. He's a purebred white, ladies and gentlemen. Not to say all white guys are bad, but I don't hear enough of the good white guys uh, openly condemning the bad ones. Okay. Well, actually, oh, that is a fucking lie. I don't even know. Manu Boo Boo. Uh, he has a wife. God damn it. Everyone I like has a wife. I don't like them because they have a wife. I develop a crush on them and I go, holy shit, does he have a wife? Always has a wife. Always has a wife. Um, and I forget his name. Because once I found out he had a wife, I'm like, ew. <laughs> not, not ew. I hope they work out. She seems very lovely. But there's a white guy, Leslie Jones, who I follow on Instagram, posted a video. So uh, a, a black background and this guy, it was a black and white video, but I can tell the guy's white. Um, a handsome guy basically saying what needs to be said 
And I, as a white person, I want to hear a fucking white guy say it because white people are the problem. Okay? So when white people are the problem like they are, then we need, you got to hear the good whites, because there are some, speak out against the bad whites. That's what I want to hear more of. And it means a lot to me personally when I see a man, a straight man, because it's just you're the a straight white guy is the one that needs the most fixing of the reputation and white women for sure. But um, just in terms of like historic stuff, because, you know, white women weren't allowed to do a lot of stuff. So I'm sure they would have been just as shitty had they had equality, but they didn't. So it's it's important for me to see a white guy uh, eloquently eloquently talk about how fucked up the Proud Boys are, the QAnon bullshit, how fucked up racism is, how disgusting of a trait it is, and how deplorable these proud dickless boys are. You know, anyway, I went on a tangent and I thought that this guy was so handsome and everything he said, I was like, holy shit. And he basically was like, if you are not behind, if you are, if you do not support Black Lives Matter, go fuck yourself. I mean, he said it way better than that, but it's not a political movement. Black Lives Matter is not political, you pieces of shit. I'm only talking to people who think it's political. If you don't think it's political, then cool. Me too. (laughs) If you agree with me, then good. No, but seriously, if you think that's a political movement, fuck off. It's not. It's a human rights. And also, white people are the problem. It's us that are racist pieces of shit, okay? So we got to talk to those shitty white people. And I liked this one video of this very handsome man that Leslie Jones posted talking about all that. And that got me on a, on a, on a rant about that. So anyway, back to this piece of shit, Phil, on the dating app. <laughs> Oh, God. You never know where I'm going to go, guys. Uh, Anyway, he's white. That's what I was saying. (laughs) Politically conservative? No way. Really? This guy? Come on. He's from Virginia. Uh, Okay. So this is his bio. Okay. He's from Virginia. So let me... Okay. This is a fuckboy theater. This is Phil's from Virginia's bio. Guess it's too much to ask having a normal old school relationship, huh? I'll give you a basic summary of who I am. Former law enforcement. Current business owner. Have a degree in geology. Animal lover. That was a curveball. Grow my own food. And I'm a religious man. I like to build things. Fix things. Even cook and make my own wine. Okay, well, you you 20% have me so far, Phil. I'm a very traditional kind of guy Uh-oh. who respects the old ways. Oh, boy. Old gods and old values. Only white men should own property. If that's not your cup of tea, move along, please, and thank you. I'm so polite. I have a lot to give. <laughs> And I am done wasting my time on women who are ungrateful whores. I added the whore part. As somebody who grew up on a farm, I learned to have lots of patience. (laughs) Glad you can handle barnyard animals, Phil. But my patience has its limits. (laughs) No. If I feel like somebody's dragging their heels, 
in parentheses, keep in mind, I'm 30 with no children. Wow, that sucks. I bet your mom's really embarrassed. I will pass you by and drop you like a rock if you don't want a real relationship. Plop, plop, plop. That was Phil dropping me like a rock into the river. And I'm happier in the river than I am with Phil. I'm not done. I am looking for a long-term relationship only. Sure, I like to have fun and go on dates to meet new people. But I have my eye on the prize. A flashlight? So if you, with legs, would like to know more, feel free to shoot a message. Very open. And then, um... What I'm actually looking for. Again, we're still on Phil's profile, okay? White girls only, please and thank you. Uh, I kind of want to fuck Phil and then afterwards go, I'm Jewish. Turn ons, heathen, asatru, pagan, or witchy girls. Now that's confusing. Witchy girls? So wait, when you said old values and old rules, you talking about the Salem witch trials? You trying to burn me, bitch? Fuck you. Fuck you, Phil. A woman who can hold an actual convo beyond small talk. Well, how can we talk if our brains are so weak, Philly? An outdoorsy and adventurous girl, smiley face. That means he wants to get blown while on a hike. A grown-ass woman who wants... To actually settle down and create a dynasty. Probably of the duck kind. She gotta love her heritage and family. And by that he means white, 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 white. Mmm, white. A woman who is herself honest and loyal. Turn offs. Thank God he put turn offs because I was like, I feel like I don't know what turns Phil off. Single moms. <laughs> Parentheses, I will never be the meme, my wife's son. You made your choice. What a, I, oh my God, okay, whatever. You know what, guys, Phil's punishment is he has to live with himself, so it's fine. I'm not done, by the way. Um, commies, in parentheses, get a job, LOL, and BLM supporters. That means Black Lives Matter. In parentheses, dot, 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 just eek. Well, Phil's racist, if you didn't pick up on that yet. Older than 30. Sorry, I'd like to have a big fam. Not my fault you wanted to settle after burning your 20s and having 10% of your eggs left. Oh my God, Phil's also a scientist, you guys. Shit. Self-absorbed. World doesn't revolve around you. Does it want... Oh, I can't see this because the button's over it. Does it want... I don't know what it says. But in parentheses under that, it says, Darwin was 100% right about you. So I can only imagine. Guys, that's Phil. That's Phil. No one fuck Phil, please. Can no one fuck Phil? I gotta say. I really... Uh... <laughs> White people should give a shit about racism against black people until we die, okay? Until it goes away, right? One of the things, and it's all, I, I always, I'm like, what can I do that's actually fucking helpful? Other than listen and read books and fucking listen, right? These white guys 
who only want to fuck a white lady. White ladies, hey, hi, don't fuck them. Don't fuck a racist. Do not fuck racists. And if you're racist, go somewhere else. I mean, go to hell. <laughs> Welcome to Earth. I don't really know. But I just, I just, I think about that often. All these fucking proud boy ass. <laughs> My dick is tiny, so I'll make up for it by being a thumb. Being a part of the only group that'll accept me. Hey, don't fuck racists. Not to say it's women's fault for fucking racists, but if you fuck a racist, fuck you. You know what I mean? I just feel like, well, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm talking out of my ass. I'm talking out of my ass. This is Phil on a date. I bet Phil has a really hairy butthole with a lot of dingleberries. Fuck you, Phil. Fucking idiot. Oh, and somebody sent me a guy emailed me? <laughs> and that's all. That's the end. Like, a guy emailed me. What? No, that's not at all it. Um, he sent me screenshots of women's dating app profiles. Did you know that motherfucking women... Have profile pictures on their dating apps, profiles of them holding goddamn fish. Huh. Would you look at that? I'm like, well, goddamn it. Learned something new today. Women fucking hold fish too. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Um, <clears throat> feel your feelings. January update for you. Cause I said I would be honest. Um, I had a drink on Friday and a drink on Saturday. And you know what? I'm glad. And. The other thing, because I, I said I'd be honest with you because, look, if we're going to shame ourselves privately or publicly, it's stupid. What a waste of your beautiful, precious energy, right? And also, that's contributing to this hellhole that is Earth. You know, you got to make life pleasant for yourself in your own head, in your own world. That doesn't mean bad things don't happen and you shouldn't feel them and grieve them and, and talk about them, right? But... One thing that we can do to make our lives significantly better that's really not that hard, you just got to practice it, is stop shaming yourself. So I had a drink, um, I had two drinks on Friday with Corinne. I was so, I was glad I did it. Because last Feel Your Feelings January, I forget how long I went without the alcohol. I don't think it was that long. Because um, I, I don't drink a lot. So I was like, you know what? Fuck this. I want to drink. So I had two drinks on Friday, and then I have one. I had one drink on Saturday, and I was happy I did it. And then I did. Um, I smoked. So I have a bl uh, like a blunt, I guess you could call it. That's just CBD. And then I dipped it in weed. Like I dipped the end of it in weed, and I smoked it. And I don't really think I got high, but I did. I think I'm pretty sure I de def technically consumed THC. But uh, again, am I ashamed? No. Do I feel like I should be ashamed? A little bit. But I'm not ashamed, and that's why I'm admitting it to you. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to be honest. Because I know I know a lot of people are like, oh, I don't know if I can give up weed. Oh, I'm like, and, and that's why I keep saying, like, just do the best you can. But I do, I do not plan on going back to my full schedule of smoking marijuana uh, until February. But hey, whatever. You know what I mean? We're all trying. We're all trying, and you might want to smoke a doobie after this fucking episode, guys. <laughs> this is going into basically types types of abuse. This guy's so poetic. I'm going to skip around, but this is chapter eight we're going to go into. Chapter eight. 
Um, oh, this comes out on Wednesday. Is that when the inauguration is? Yeah, fuck. I hope everything's okay. Motherfucking cunt. I had a crazy... Ass. Yo, your girl's psychic as hell. I had the craziest dream last night where I was he- with Melania Trump. I never dream about those scumbags. Those fucking lizard people. Um, I was with her and I fucking stole papers out of a shredder to like as evidence against I mean I don't know it was a fucking vivid ass dream and then I was with Donald Trump because I, I worked in the White House in my dream I never dream about this shit and I I consume politics I consume the news you know once a day for 20 minutes but then when shit goes down like last week I consume it for a little longer than that but I never dream about it and I did a really like in-depth meditation um, last night that was like fucking blew my mind and I was hallucinating like I was on mushrooms. It was fucking awesome. Oh, we'll get into that in February. Don't you worry, okay? <clears throat> yeah, and then I was, I was, I guess I was working, I was like an assistant for them or something and then I was stealing these paper shreds and Melania was just like a bitch and she was not nice in my dream, which I don't know if she's like that in real life, but I would, if I had a bet, I would say, yeah, probably. Um... And then I had to get Donald Trump his sandwich or something. Like, no one wanted to talk to him. Everyone hated him. And I was like, yeah, you fucking suck, but you're you're stupid, dude. You're too stupid to be Hitler at least painted. You know what I'm saying? Like, first of all, Hitler, uh, I don't speak German. And as I like, feel comfortable talking about this because I'm Jewish. But, I, you know, it is important to note that I didn't know I was Jewish until 23 tests, So... You know, but all my friends are Jews, and now I am a Jew. But you look back at, like, a person who uh, really just was murderous with his words and never, I don't know that he ever actually killed a person, but with his words he did. Killed hundreds of thousands of people. Because, you know, the Holocaust, it actually happened. I know, I know, I know. But, you know, you look at when you're in social studies class or just, you know, going down a Hitler wormhole on the internet. Sometimes you do. I really want to go to Auschwitz. I don't know why. I just really want to go. I'm uh, I, I'm really into history. I think it's so fascinating, even the bad parts of history. Because, again, guys, this is hell. Earth is hell. And it's up to us to make it heaven. But, you know, not a lot of great shit happening right now. Okay? But you look at Hitler and you're like, I don't speak German. However, I could tell that he's a powerful speaker. Donald Trump's so fucking dumb. And it's sad. And he's an an open wound with legs and a shit toupee. Okay? And so in the dream, I felt bad for him. I'm like, God, you're so fucking... I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, oh, you're too stupid to like... But then you look at the people that he's inspiring to take over the Capitol, and they're fucking idiots too. And you're like, okay... All right. I mean, ugh, not saying Nazis were smart, but I'm saying Hitler had some tact. Donald Trump's just like not he just doesn't even speak in complete sentences. And I just I remember in this dream uh just sitting there feeling horrible for him and also just hating him at the same time and I was like, "Wow, look at me living in opposites in my dream." Anyway, I just went on a tangent about that. I don't really know why. But uh, hey, y'all, we're going to read about uh, some stuff in Chapter 8. 
Chapter 8 is called The Fully Feeling Depends on Fully Remembering. Sometimes you don't want to remember it because remembrance sucks balls. But you know what? It's helpful. Okay? Can't grieve if you can't remember. Let me make sure I covered all my topics. Oh, I didn't. I'm looking at my computer of all my topics. Yeah, just burp into the mic, Christina. It's fine. Oh, the my pillow guy, Mike Lindell. Mike Lindell, you know, God, you you seem so delicate, but at the same time, I want to just scream, "Shut the fuck up!" But I, God, I, you know, Mike Lindell. Fucking, I talked about you on an earlier episode of The Voices in Our Heads, and I was like, you used to be a goddamn heroin addict, and now all you want is for people to get a good night's sleep, and that's goddamn admirable. But now. You're in the goddamn Trump office ask, telling him that there's voter fraud and that's what's causing these fucking idiots to storm the Capitol and die. It's just like, shut the fuck up, Michael Adele. And then Bed Bath & Beyond, love you, bitch. Um, stop selling my pillow. And they said it was because it wasn't selling. But who gives a shit why they stop selling it? I mean, I would th- I would hope. I wish they could just be like, yeah, fuck you, Mike Lindell. We don't want to sell your stupid ass pillow. It's all you sell is a pillow. Your whole career is selling pillows. And guess what? The pillows, they're not that special. Oh, yeah, I fucking said it. Yeah, I fucking said it, Mike Lindell. My pillow, you can keep it. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I just think I'm so funny. All right, I'm going to talk, stop talking about these pieces of shit and then talk about our pieces of shit parents, y'all. Woo! Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. I'm teaching. I'm teaching. That's a lot of, load of shit. I'm leading a discussion group. It's kind of similar to children of alcoholic or dysfunctional, adult children of alcoholic or dysfunctional families. Meetings that I would go to, which are similar to the 12-step type of format. And I'm doing a workshop on mommy issues. It's sold out very fast. And I'm thinking, I'm like, oh, we, I should just do one. I don't know. I don't want to do it once a week, honestly. But maybe like once every other week or once a month. And I only had, I think I only, we only allowed 15 or 20 people to do it. Because part of the um, adult children meetings is you get to share uninterrupted for two minutes. And that, and as you will hear in this chapter by Peter Walker. Um, talking about your story and what happened to you is very fucking helpful. It is. And as somebody who has been (laughs) crying into a microphone for 32 years, I can concur with that statement. Oh, and there's my other note that I wanted to say before I started reading this. Eugene Goodman. He is a black man. He's the Capitol police officer that lured the fucking crowd of racist pieces of shit with like weapons in their hand away from the lawmakers. And just you just you know his name, please. Eugene Goodman. God damn. What a brave motherfucker. Oh, my God. Also. Oh, also at some point, Google uh, KKK infiltrating the police force. That's a fun one. And by fun, I mean, we got to work on ourselves. Why, people? We got to work on ourselves. Everybody got to work on themselves, but boy, we got to work on ourselves because we're making life a living hell for others because we hate ourselves and we got to stop that. Okay. Okay. Oh, that's the other thing I wanted to say. All right. One last thing. And it is politics related, but this is just a theory. The QAnon. I didn't really know what that was, but then Corinne explained it to me. She's in Philly this weekend, by the way, at Helium. Go see her. 25% 25% capacity. Um, so, and they have like a air filtration system. Go see Corinne Fisher at Helium this weekend if, if you want, if you live in Philly. 
But she explained it to me, and part of it was that there's these people that belong to QAnon um, are ner- are like freaked out that there's an undercover pedophilia ring, right? And they say Hollywood's run by pedophiles and Jews or something. But look, pedophilia is a motherfucking thing, okay? And there are pedophilia rings, right? There are. There's just, I mean, there are. You you hear Jeffrey Epstein? There you go. There's one. Like, there's proof of some. I think the QAnon motherfuckers, because you, you guys, you're. Ugh. I feel like a lot of I I don't know. This is a guess, but I wonder. I'm not I'm not going to assume this at all cuz I might be totally fucking wrong. But I wonder if the QAnon people that are like really gung-ho, like that fucking idiot guy with the horns who's like not eating in jail cuz the food's not organic. I wonder if he was molested as a little boy. The people in QAnon if they were molested as kids because let me tell you something, a lot of motherfuckers, men and women, were molested as kids. It is insane. How many people were molested, raped, touched, coerced to not ever say anything as children? I cannot tell you how common that is because I hear about it all the time. And it's not even shocking to me. A lot of people that I'm very close with were molested as kids. A lot of people I've talked to after comedy shows or after guys who fuck show were molested as kids. A lot of people were molested as kids. So I'm wondering, I don't know, just food for thought. If that was the strong pull, because I'm like, really? You're listening to Donald Trump? He's a fucking idiot. So I don't know. I'm like, what? Because I'm very, I will never not be curious about the human condition, the human experience, people of all different viewpoints. I'm just like, what the fuck makes you tick? I really want to know what makes you tick. Just to know, really. All right, let's get into chapter eight. Get ready to cry, motherfuckers. So this is all about... The types of abuse and uh, and neglect, which people don't really chalk up to abuse, because as I said one or two episodes ago, we got to set the bar higher than being beaten or raped. Do you know what I mean? Like we need to, uh, we also need to understand that we might have not gotten what we needed because we were emotionally neglected and that fucking blows, okay? Comparing yourself and going, well, I wasn't raped. Cool. But you don't get applause for that. You know what I mean? Like, you're just, you just, children need to be nurtured. We're, humans are very delicate, emotional, wonderful, beautiful beings, but it, we can turn cold and hard so easily. <laughs> hard. Okay. Let's read some stuff from chapter eight. I'm going to skip around a little bit. Um, but I think this really covers the gamut of, uh, of what a lot of us have probably experienced. <sighs> this is under a section called Constructing a Detailed Picture of Childhood Abuse and Neglect. The blind obedience demanded of us by our parents in childhood left many of us ignorant of the effects of the verbal, spiritual, emotional, and physical abuse and neglect we suffered. Um, many of us have great difficulty dismantling our denial and minimization about our childhood suffering because the most impactive aspects of it occurred during our amnesiac preschool years. Many of us enter recovery with little memory or sense of how we were actually parented during this time. Most survivors have huge memory gaps before the age of six. As recovery progresses, many discover that they receive little or no attention from their parents during this time, and that, and that what, what attention they did receive was often marred by impatience and irritability. And I highlighted that because I was like, ooh, that's a trigger. Because I never, I don't really remember age five, four and five, but I have very clear memories of age like two. It's weird. Um, but I know just based off the timeline, I know that that's when my mom 
That's when a lot of bad. That's when my house was uh, just a terrible place to be. Most toddlers in our culture are routinely subjected to intense periods of scolding and spanking. They are hampered in their development by enormous amounts of unnecessary restriction and discipline. Many parents are oblivious to the fact that children need a great deal of permission to explore their immediate environment. It is crucial to their development that they be allowed to participate as much as possible in all that transpires around them. You got to nurture me, bitch. Okay, you got to nurture a kid. I witnessed many survivors having an especially difficult time validating their losses around the non-physical forms of, of abuse and neglect. Therefore, this chapter presents an in-depth exploration of the na nature of verbal, spiritual, and emotional abuse and neglect. At the same time, it is also important to note that many survivors minimize the consequences of the physical abuse they suffered. You might test yourself for this right now by closing your eyes, except if you're driving or driving, riding a horse, and imagining that an outrage and imagining that an enraged person, three times your size, has just entered the room, glaring at you. Suddenly, she yanks you up by the arm and holding you suspended in the air, smacks you on the buttocks with all her force. If that really happened to you, and it did to me, woohoo! Can you imagine the terror you must have felt? And yet this is not an unusual scene. Many parents with an even greater size differential routinely strike toddlers, often repeatedly in this manner. Yeah, it's kind of fucked up. It's kind of fucked up. Don't fucking hit your kids. I really, I don't have kids, but I don't even feel bad about tell, telling somebody how to parent. I think hitting your kids is a bunch of BS, okay? That stands for bullshit. It does not seem to be necessary to recall every single incident of abuse to achieve significant recovery. Thank fucking God, because we'll be here for the end of time. On the other hand, it is essential that we identify the key themes of our abuse and neglect. Some examples of these themes are criticism of physical appearance, sarcasm about crying. Oh, that one happened a lot. Belittlement about expressing anger, degradation for making mistakes, humiliation about aspirations and dreams, deprivation of affection, general lack of interest, failure to teach basic survival skills, poor care in matters of grooming, <laughs> yeah, and diet, lack of protection from others, unfair criticism, and so forth. Many of these themes can be summed up as the no self-esteem rule. While many dysfunctional families enforce denial and minimization through the infamous no-talk rule, even more operate with the unspoken rule that children are not allowed to have self-esteem. Without a detailed memory of our sense of our abuse and neglect history, we remain developmentally arrested in important areas of our needs and rights. Unless we identify and reclaim these needs and rights, we will not mature into fully feeling and fully expressing adult human beings. And that's what I want to be, y'all. I don't know about you, but take me on the train to fully express a town. Toot toot. <coughs> toot toot. Okay, all aboard. Okay, we're all crying. Okay, cool. Um, all right. Let's get into verbal abuse. No. Yes. bought that button at target such a dick um oh this quote this quote it says it's the, the under like who says the quote it just says contemporary song but this quote <laughs> this quote is sticks and stones will break my bones and names will break my heart 
Oh, my God. And you know, part of me, this is a clue uh, how I was raised, motherfuckers. Part of me is like, oh, whatever, pussy, get the fuck over it, you fucking pussy ass bitch. And then the other part of me is like imagining, you know, I have uh, a couple of my friends have kids and, and I have a nephew and like I, I just my friends who have children, I, there's this really good children. They're just wonderful, beautifully curious adorable children my nephew is the sweetest oh my god i i i ache when i think of how sweet and pure and wonderful and lovely this little boy is and if someone fucking called him a name i'd kill them do you know what i'm saying so (laughs) living with opposites guys but i you know a lot of this stuff on sarcasm i have mixed feelings about because i'm a comedian there are different types of jokes, all kinds of jokes. Uh, I skip a lot of the stuff he says. Um, this author says in this chapter about sarcasm. But I will say my father was sarcastic as fuck to the point where some of this I'm like, oh, he's not off the hook either. Fucking dad was mean sometimes. But they talk about this dad dads in this chapter and moms and um I feel like that, oh, get over it, you pussy. That comes from my dad. My dad didn't say that word exactly, but uh, just that kind of sarcasm. And then, yeah, I don't know. Some of the sarcasm stuff reminds me of my dad. And I can't, like, I'm very sensitive if y'all have not picked up on that goddamn yet, okay? Anyway, let's get into verbal abuse. Who's horny? Verbal abuse is the use of language to shame, scare, or hurt another. Dysfunctional parents routinely use name-calling, sarcasm, and destructive criticism to overpower and, and control their children. Verbal abuse is as commonplace in the American family as homework and table manners. It is modeled as socially acceptable in almost every sitcom on television. The following time-worn castigations may sound familiarly painful to you. Quote, How did I wind up with such a crummy kid? No one likes you, you good-for-nothing little brat. Only a selfish little ingrate would do that. Having you was the worst thing that ever happened to me. Oh, my God, that's terrible. My parents didn't say that. Oh, God. I'm sure sure if you're listening to this, some of you got parents that said that. That's terrible. I can't stand the sight of you. That I heard, actually. (laughs) You'll never amount to anything. You make me sick. You're rotten through and through. When this, the only thing that I've had, the one thing that I have, but that didn't happen until I was like in my 20s. My dad said to me once that I didn't do anything that he could be proud of. And I was like, <laughs> I kind of laughed because I was like, Dad, fuck you. Uh, I'm doing a lot of things I could be proud of. And I know you mean well, but you know what? Those words suck, okay? Anyway, when this kind of undercutting talk is habitual, it alone will destroy a child's self-esteem. Yeah, no shit. When language carries threats, it is even more abusive and destructive. The following admonishments are also common parlance in many dysfunctional families. If you don't do what I say, I will never talk to you again. Or if you don't wipe that expression off your face, I'll wipe it off for you. I heard that one. If you don't eat your peas, you'll get nothing for Christmas. That's so sad. And then he says, I had one unfortunate client who, for the crime of forgetting to make her bed one day, was only given a piece of coal on her fifth Christmas. You guys, we gotta be nicer to our fucking kid. She didn't make her fucking bed, you piece of shit. Ugh. We gotta stop this cycle. That's terrible. 
When children are addressed frequently in such ways, they are forced to live in fear as well as a toxic shame. Verbal abuse is quite different from constructive criticism. Statements like, hitting your sister is not okay, I don't like it when you call me names, and if you don't do your homework, you can not go out and play, are not verbal abuse. Yeah. Parents owe it to their children to correct behaviors that are harmful to them or others. This duty can readily be accomplished in ways that are not abusive or shaming, and that point and that point out the behavior is bad, not the child. Very important. Unfortunately, many survivors grew up in families in which criticism was not constructive. Not only was criticism destructive, but it was often inaccurate and presented as if it were scientific fact. Many survivors still believe and cling to the negative parental appraisals regardless of how objective evidence there is, how much objective evidence there is to the contrary. I frequently hear very intelligent, accomplished survivors inaccurately disparaging themselves with their parents' brands of stupid and worthless. Oh, man. Yeah. Emotional abuse. Oh, this is a quote. We understand and accept that victims of physical or sexual abuse need time and specialized treatment to heal. But when it comes to emotional abuse, we are more likely to believe victims will just get over it when they become adults. This assumption is dangerously wrong. Emotional abuse scars the heart and damages the soul. Like cancer, it does, n- is m- it does its most deadly work internally. And like cancer, it can metastasize if untreated. Andrew Vax. Who's horny? Emotional abuse is the use of feelings to shame, scare, or hurt another. And you know what else is emotional abuse? Fucking masculinity. Like the toxic machismo masculinity. Not like the like the stereotype version. The stereotype version of anything is toxic. But like, I just think a lot about how little boys are encouraged not to feel sad. And hopefully that's getting better. I feel like it is because we're really... Truly, in my lifetime, and I'm 32 years young, thank you so much, oh my god, I have seen conversations about things, about what what we talk about has evolved so much between when I was a child and this very day. And that is incredible. I don't know if it usually happens like that, if, if conversations and the depth of where we go within ourselves and with our friends and with our families evolves this drastically over 32 years young but let me tell you something i'm thankful for it and i love like my brother always tells brantley he that he loves him like they always say i love you to each other and i oh god i met i've talked about this before but I'll, oh it's so cute brantley i heard brantley say to my brother once um i think my brother wouldn't allow him to have like food before dinner or some, something something where i was like yeah that's fair but brantley was like daddy it makes me very sad when you say that and i was like oh my god if we ain't we're raising the next generation of boys to be great men and that for that i'm grateful all right emotional abuse emotional abuse is the okay i already read that part oh no well i'll read it again fuck you i'll read it again okay Emotional abuse is the use of feelings to shame, scare, or hurt another. The parent who screams and yells with rage at her child is being emotionally abusive. She is dumping her anger and frustration on the child. And boy, was I catcher's mitt for that shit. When children are continuously sullied with their parents' anger, sadness, depression, and fear, they get a bad taste for these emotions. (gasps) You don't say 
this adds to their fear of these feelings in themselves and in others. Oh, interesting observation, Doc. They grow up to be adults who go to extraordinary lengths to avoid feeling or expressing emotions. Yeah. Yeah, I can I can I can verify that, guys. The parent who manipulates Oh, this one's bummer. This one's a fucking bummer. The parent who manipulates by withdrawing from his child in pouting, angry silence also commits emotional abuse. Thank you. He is emotionally blackmailing his child through abandonment and through evoking guilt and fear to gain more absolute control over her. God, I need to just rip out this page and send it to my freaking mom. Emotional incest is yet another form of emotional abuse. Ooh, this chapter's for me, isn't it? Emotional incest commonly involves the reversal of the parent-child roles. Ha <laughs> ha! When this occurs, the mother and father parentifies the child who is then manipulated to gratify the unmet childhood needs of the parents. Wasn't that a whole bunch of poopy poop fart poop, huh? Yep, it is. This typically manifests as the parent pumping the child for the unconditional love that she should herself be given. Patricia Love has written a very helpful book on this subject called The Emotional Incest Syndrome. Emotional incest also occurs when a parent transforms his child into a confident a confidant and uses her as a sounding board for all his concerns and problems. Alice Miller explains how easy it is for parents to seduce a child into this kind of relationship. Quote, a newborn baby is completely dependent on his parents. And since this caring is essential for his existence, he does all he can to avoid losing them. From the very first day onward, he will muster all his resources to this end, like a small plant that turns towards the sun in order to survive. Oh, guys, I promise we'll be okay. Um, oh, this is a quote from Alex Osborne. Creativity is so delicate a flower that praise tends to make it bloom, while discouragement often nips it in the bud. And this section is called The Deadly Duo of Verbal and Emotional Abuse. Ooh, sounds like a porn parody. Verbal and emotional abuse are often perpetrated at one and the same time. Unfair, angry criticism is an example of this, as the criticism is not only destructive in meaning, but also charged with hurtful emotions. Anger and disgust in a parent's tone of voice makes the child feel that he is essentially bad and unlovable and i'm so goddamn glad he said that because fucking yeah if you had a parent with a mental disorder mental illness chances are this parent has talked to you as a child if they were mentally ill or mentally injured or whatever the fuck we want to call it bipolar whatever and they fucking looked at you or like you were the scum of the earth mirroring is very important to a baby it's v- mirroring, meaning the parent reflects the joy that the, is in the child's face. You, the kid needs that, okay? So if the kid's getting looked at or getting spoken to in a tone that's that 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 lets the kid that's an evil, basically, because when you're fucking, a lot of times bipolar is different for everybody. But let me goddamn tell you, depending on how much medication fucked up your mom, it's like she's fucking possessed, and that alone is 
fucking terrifying. Even if she's saying, I love you, honey. Well, she didn't say, she said it more evil. I can't even do it. I can't even do an impression of it. It's terrifying. Tone of voice is often the vehicle by which emotions are delivered. Tone of voice alone can be very abusive. Of course we love you can be uttered in an emotionally venomous way, even though the words themselves are not abusive. See? Because it could be, of course we love you. Or it could be, of course we love you. You fucking bitch. Or whatever. (laughs) Bitch. (laughs) Uh, If I don't make myself laugh, I'll make myself cry. I only want you to be happy. Um, Some martyrish mothers could intone, I only want you to be happy in a way that would make a saint or sociopath feel guilty. Ooh, saints and sociopaths. I feel like that's a good name for a band. (laughs) An emo band. I'm sad and I'm a sociopath. Anyway, the use of tone of voice to emotionally intimidate is usually the exclusive right of the parents. When adult child does not remember, what adult child does not remember being scolded with that retort? How dare you talk to me in that tone of voice? Yet who among us was ever allowed to protest the same tone in their parents' voices? I would say probably zero, huh? Yep, I win. Destructive words paired with the emotions of anger or disgust force children to contract in fear and toxic shame. When this happens on a daily basis, children suffer so intensely that they may be driven to in, into early drug and alcohol abuse, mental illness, or even suicide, even in families that are not physically abusive. This is important to note because so many survivors recoil at sympathy for the verbal and emotional abuse they suffered. They often do this by citing the classic minimization, I had a good compared to others. They never even hit me. Dysfunctional parents often add emotional abuse and verb- to verbal abuse by delivering destructive messages with intimidating body language and facial expressions of hate or disgust. It is abusive to scowl at a child with loathing effect, with skin inflamed with rage, with facial veins bulging in hate. It is abusive to deliver a critical message with clenched fists or with hands pounding on the table. When an adult does does this to a child, the child becomes terrified. If he is young enough, this fear may so overwhelm him that he wets his pants like a terrorized puppy. When parents scowl at children as if they are disgusting, they often internalize this as a sense of being ugly, no matter how physically attractive they actually are. In moments of deep vulnerability in therapy, I have heard models, actors, and others whom most people would consider beautiful or handsome express great disgust and disappointment in their looks. In my early years as a therapist, this incongruity so perplexed me that I had a hard time taking it seriously. Yeah, because it's also, you know, I get that. Because when a hot when a hot person's like thinks they're ugly, you know, all you can see is that they're hot, and you're like, "Fuck you," because you wish you were that hot. As my denial and minimization about verbal and emotional abuse subsided, I could see more clearly how survivors' self images become so distorted. When a child is bombarded with critical messages accompanied by a tone of disgust and a facial expression of loathing, she cannot help but believe that she is ugly and unpleasant to look at. Yeah mirroring motherfuckers if your parents looking at you like they want to kill you then you're gonna think of yourself like you should die it's fucking math it's emotional family math who's horny Uh. not me 
Uh, her self-image becomes so distorted that she can only see ugliness when she looks in the mirror. The combination of verbal and emotional abuse is the most lethal weapon used in the destruction of a child's self-esteem. When children are continuously assaulted in this way, they eventually become numb and get used to being degraded. When this occurs, denial concretizes and children sever the connection with their normal feelings of hurt and anger about verbal hostility. With no access to the healthy blame that normally arises to challenges to challenge such attacks, they may have unprotestingly put up with verbal abuse and emotional abuse for the rest of their lives. If they are female, yeah, they may even join the ranks of the many women in our culture who brag that they have good marriages because their husbands never hit them. Well, I feel like that's an old reference, but you know, that's okay. I feel like women know that that's weird to brag about, but maybe some don't. So we're gonna, I'm going to read that part. Okay. Survivors need to regain their feelings about how much it hurts to be lambasted in critical ways and in belligerent tones. If they do not, they risk becoming permanent dumping grounds for other people's anger. I am often struck by the number of people around me who allow significant others to routinely hurt them with an abusive tone of voice or with denigrating remarks. My ex-boyfriend did that. <laughs> He was so fu- there was moments where he was so fucking mean to me and now that I realize it I'm like oh fuck you bitch fuck you because I and that's why I bring it up 2 years after we broke up I mean the relationship was 7 years so I you know it's a big one it was a big one it was very important to me but and these things I even got mad at in the moment I remember getting mad at but then I just didn't ever consider that a disqualifier that we should be together (laughs) we had a photo shoot i remember he took pictures of me and he goes why can't you be sexier and i'm like motherfucker i'm gonna take that camera and shove it up your flat ass okay it's very flat (laughs) Uh, i mean it's just but the thing is that what my point is sometimes it's like you know you can logically know in a romantic uh relationship that romantic romantic situation that what this other person is saying is fucked up sometimes you don't and you're all your friends are like hey that's fucked up you're like you're just jealous because i'm in love and you're not and you're like no that's not it and then you're like no that's it i'm pretty sure and then years later they're like oh he said fucked up shit and all your friends are like yeah no i know i told you but sometimes you do know it's fucked up and then you get mad and hurt. I remember being so hurt by that. But then I just like forgave him. I was also 23. I was a little baby. All right. Sarcasm and teasing disguised as abuse. Let's get into it, huh? Okay. Yeah, this is the part I skip a bunch of this stuff. But this is um, characteristics of destructive sarcasm. Because I will say, one member of my family was bipolar, and the other member of my family uh, was destructively sarcastic, I would say. It's, that's a very accurate assumption. They tried their best. Okay? We all did. But their best wasn't good enough for me. Okay? <laughs> In our culture... Oh, yeah. They, okay, this is the part he said about a comedian. I'll, I'll read it to you. This is a little paragraph, Okay? It feels awful to be on the receiving end of abusive sarcasm. Imagine being the target of a nasty comedian like Don Rickles or someone who has actually hurtfully teased you. How do you feel inside as you picture them picking on you in front of other people? I mean, because here's the thing. I mean, and I'm a comedian, so I'm going to address this. <laughs> uh, here, here's a perfect topic to address this. 
Um, and, and, and it also speaks to, because like I said, anything can be the subject of a joke. Anything, right? But the, it is, I believe as a comedian, for me personally, it is my responsibility. Okay, a rape joke is the perfect example. When the victim of rape is the butt of the joke, that's not fucking funny. Okay? It's not funny. You're an asshole. And you're you're a bully. You might be a rapist. I mean, that's just a weird to make the rape victim the butt of the or the person who was raped the butt of the joke. May, that's not funny. You're a fucking idiot. Now, do I support your right to tell a joke? Yes. Is that your joke you're going to tell? Well, sure. The crowd will let you know that you're a piece of shit for sure. I've seen it happen. But the thing is, I've seen it happen in open mics where it's in front of a bunch of comics and it's like, okay, I get where you were trying to go with that joke. You desperately missed the mark because the the victim of the crime should never be the butt of the joke. That's why self-deprecation is always like the best way to go as a comic. I'll make fun of my goddamn self all goddamn day. So the way he talks about Don Rickles in this book, like he only mentions him once, but I'm like, all right, that's not because some comics that I know will get up um, at like a lot of times when you host a show, you're supposed to like ask the audience where they're from and kind of make not make fun of them, but laugh with them, tease them a little bit. But I've never it's very rare that I see that go wrong, partially because I've been doing this for 10 goddamn years and I'm good at it and I'm around people who are good at it. So they know what to do. And also sometimes, you know, if you have an insecurity, I guess it depends on who you are, but I like laughing at my insecurities. We do roast battles as comics, and one of my favorite things in the world for me is being roasted. And there's this kind of unspoken rule of you roast the ones you love. So when I I made the mistake of my first two ever roast battles where you just insult the shit out of each other. Um, it's really fun. Uh, I did it with people that I actually didn't like at the time. So that was a mistake for me because some of my rows were just like, you fucking asshole. Like it did. They weren't funny. They were just like mean. And when they're mean, you lose because the, uh, the object of the game is to be funny. But like, I remember Wendy Starling and I was one of my dear friends. We roasted each other on a roast battle and it was so fucking funny because she knows me I know her we love each other we know about each other's insecurities and so I told her I was like okay I'm really insecure about my eyebrows because I kind of wanted her to make fun of my insecurities because that's how I heal from them is by making fun of myself and when it's coming from somebody you love it's better but I think one of her jokes that she had against me was (laughs) like Christina your eyebrows are so thin what do you wash your face with nair and I died laughing (laughs) My eyebrows were never the same after the incident, y'all. The waxing incident in eighth grade. We'll get to that in another day. Anyway, um, the sarcasm. Yeah, so sarcasm uh, can be really hurtful, when you, especially when you're a fucking kid. Like, a kid is not evolved enough to understand sarcasm. Don't be sarcastic to your kid, you shitbag. And I know it's probably because someone was sarcastic to you when you were a kid. But let's stop the cycle, Okay. In our culture, our uniqueness is often subjected to sarcasm in such a way that we often feel too afraid and ashamed to unfold into the full intricacy of our individuality. That's a nice way of saying getting teased makes you closed off. (laughs) Don't worry, I'll give you the dumb people summary of this poet's words. (laughs) To avoid teasing, many of us avoid expressing ourselves in ways that make us stand out or excel. Not anymore, I'm coming out. We are afraid to be more than anyone else in most areas of our lives. We embrace mediocrity. Ugh. No. 
and the sterility of conformity and silence ourselves or even withdrawal when we can't come up with the ordinary and expected response to a given situation. (laughs) I don't got no problem with that, y'all. But some of you might. Our authenticity withers and dies and is replaced by a soulless rhetoric of trivial trivia, cliches, and all that has been proven to be safe and soulless rhetoric. I think I repeated that. Whatever. Um, For women, this is, of course... This is the curse of pinkness and lace. For men, this is banishment into the desert of box scores and statistics. The impoverished monoculture of sports conversation. Now, I will say, as somebody who is not that into sports, but I love playing sports, and I really like watching football, I just don't do it. Like, if it's on and I'm at a guy's house, I'm like, I'll fucking watch this. I like football. Sport, I, I gotta say, I, I, I've been guilty of being like, all men do is love sports. Well, if you were raised to not feel sadness and glee, yeah, maybe you want to watch a bunch of grown men beating the shit out of each other. But also, people like Doc Rivers, who's a coach, who's a basketball coach, sports is a really beautiful thing. It's a- Athleticism is a beautiful homage to our bodies and what we are capable of if with focus and discipline. So I, I really, I kind of see sports in a different way. Since quarantine, you know, getting real bored watching sports documentaries, going, oh shit, maybe they have a point. Anyway, um, I kind of don't want to read the. Uh, yeah, I know we're. I knew we were going to go over an hour, but um, there's other stuff I want to read, and I don't want to go too over. So let's let's skip. Let's skip. Let's skip. Okay, you get the goddamn book if you want to read the whole thing. <laughs> ah, neglect, invisible perpetration. This is a quote uh, that I that I really like you can't know the difference between cruelty and nurturance unless you've had nurturing John Bradshaw if our society is in gross pervasive denial about the destructiveness of verbal and emotional abuse how much more ignorant are we of the damage caused by verbal and emotional neglect let that sink in maltreatments of omission are so much harder to identify than those of commission especially when they are occur together The fact that a perpetrator lets a victim bleed after stabbing him may seem insignificant compared to the violent act itself, yet the former may be the actual cause of death. Good point, Nancy Drew. Adult children who are verbally and emotionally blasted into dissociated numbness have difficulty realizing they were also starved for praise, love, and engagement. For many survivors, it is incomprehensible that verbal and emotional neglect caused them grave losses. If certain kinds of fundamental nurturance have never been experienced, it's hard to know what they were missing. Many of us are in recovery for years before we begin to understand the profound damage we suffered because of childhood deprivation. If we cannot clearly uh, recognize the exact nature of our neglect, we risk remaining oblivious to recurrences of it in our current relationships. But you can't experience a recurrence in your current relationship if you're all alone, huh? (laughs) All by myself. I would like to be. Okay, let's talk about verbal neglect. (laughs) Can't get abused by a boyfriend if you don't have a boyfriend, (laughs) huh? I hope you're laughing too. (laughs) Okay. 
Verbal neglect. There is no freedom of speech for children and families afflicted by the no-talk rule and the belief that children should be seen and not heard. Modern parents routinely neglect their children by not spending generous amounts of time with them. This was written before the app ad was invented. Verbal neglect is conversational deprivation. It causes children to grow up believing there is something so fundamentally wrong with them that they are unworthy of conversational engagement. That's the thing. Mirroring, motherfuckers. Mirroring. If your parents don't talk to you as a child, your child-ass brain is going to be like, well, I guess no one wants to talk to me because I'm a piece of shit, huh? Okay. I'm just going to grow up and not talk to anybody because I'm a piece of shit, so I know to stay away. Thank you for that reminder. Okay, see you later. Gotta get a better fart machine. Verbal neglect is especially painful and destructive to children when they see their parents talking enthusiastically with other children. I can still recall the acute pain I felt when my father bantered with my cousins or the neighborhood kids. He made my heart ache because he never joked around with me. That's so sad. His neglect further turned my mind against me, augmenting the ever-growing list of defects I imagined as the causes of his liking other children more than me. Oh man. My, my parents didn't do that. They didn't want to talk to nobody. <laughs> Not even themselves. Uh, we're trying. But I will say my grandmother on my dad's side, she hated women. She I never I never we just and we all knew that. She hated women. She had my dad and my dad's brother, my uncle. And she would tell me when I was a child, I'm talking like five, six, she would tell me that she had miscarriages and she was convinced that we were girls because God didn't want her to have a girl. I'm like, ew, dude, I'm five. Can you not tell me that? She was so fucking mean to me. So mean to me that I was like, all right, this is obviously not okay. But I'm kind of just like, huh? Like, I don't know. I wasn't that affected by it because I don't know. I was like, at least you're not hitting me or throwing hammers at my head. But uh, I remember my grandma, who hated women, would, would we would be in the pool in Florida because they lived in the villages. And um, that fucking place is paradise for the oldies, old people. Not Honestly, not that old because I think it's a 55 and up. I'm like, 55 ain't that old. Anyway, I went to the villages a lot. With, we went to see them in Florida. And she would always have so much fun with every kid except me. And I'm like, all right, bitch. I mean, jig is up. I can tell you're doing that. Come on. Fucking asshole. <laughs> Yeah, for some reason I knew that was wrong and I kind of just was humored by it. Anyway, a child needs to parent uh, needs a parent to listen with interest to what he has to say in order to develop a solid foundation of self-esteem. The child who is not consistently invited and welcomed to speak grows up to believe that he is boring, uninteresting and worthless. If the child is not frequently and enthusiastically engaged in conversation, how will he build the confidence and enthusiastically engage in conversation? Oh, whoops, oops. How will he build the confidence to risk sharing his inner world with anyone else? Aw. Men, share your feelings more. Women love it. Well, I love it. I've had numerous clients with no abuse history at all who have suffered years of depression and social isolation because of their extremely non-interactive parents. This lack of conversational engagement convinced them that nothing they could possibly think of to say would be of any interest to anyone. Girls who grew up with fathers who did not communicate with them are at risk of becoming women who settle for dysfunctional, silent husband relationships. Mm. Not this girl. I want a yapper. Let's just talk, 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 talk. 
Uh, if their mothers normalize their father's detachment with cliches like, don't bother your father, dear. He's had a hard day at work. I mean, we've all heard that. And of course your father loves you, dear. He's just too tired to talk to you right now. They may marry men who are just as aloof and unapproachable as the 20th century stereotype of dear old dad. Ooh, just hit me in the nuts with that one. Unless survivors work through the illusion that dad's disinterest was really love, they are unlikely to expect anything better from their partners. Oblivious to the fact that they suffered from their father's lack of interest with no other model of opposite sex intimacy, they are exceptionally prone to marry men with similar disabilities. Those of us who do not understand and work through the aspect of repetition compulsion often lead dismally lonely lives. Not this girl. Toot toot. Life losses. Life loses its glow when we were stranded in relationships. <laughs> I make myself laugh. When we were stranded in relationships that are as verbally and emotionally impoverished as the ones we had with our parents. When it, disinterest passes for love, we fail to realize that much of our depression and hunger comes from being so deprived. Ugh! Spooky. Ongoing lack of attention to a partner is a cruel and insidious form of neglect. Insidious. Whoops. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Verbal nurturance. Ooh, let's talk about something good for goddamn once. <laughs> oh, we, I need this one. Because, you know, okay, so we know what verbal neglect looks like. Clearly. Ha <laughs> ha. Uh, let's talk about what it looks like to nurture a goddamn motherfucker, okay? Children require a great deal of verbal engagement to develop self-esteem and good communication skills. Parents are the pivotal players in their acquisition of verbal skills. If a child's confidence and self-esteem are to solidify, he needs to experience his parents as readily available to hear what he has to say. Parents who are not neglectful willingly and enthusiastically listen to their child they do it not only out of duty but also out of gratitude for exposure to a child's naturally vibrant curiosity and thirst for understanding can be healthily infectious and yeah it can oh man kids are the shit Participating in the miraculously rapid unfoldment and expansion of a fully welcomed new mind is a truly inspiring experience. That was just very goddamn well said. Parents enhance the growth of a child's verbal skills by eliciting her speech. Elicitation is the art of encouraging a child to speak fully and uninhibitedly about her experience. Elicitation allows the child's self-expression to blossom and enhances his capacity to find the joy and love that comes so naturally out of shame-free communication. And guys, let me tell you something. You can experience the joy and love that naturally comes out of shame-free communication at any fucking age. So I think this is a good litmus test, actually. If you do not experience in your life, not on a daily basis, doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be on a daily basis, but, you know, once a week, <laughs> that to me is not a lot, but whatever. Even once a week, if you do not experience beautiful, full, engaging conversation with another human being, be it your lover, your coworker, your husband, your child, your parent, if you're talking to them, and if you're not, that's okay. Maybe you are trying to figure out your boundaries. 
But if you do not experience that type of communication and the joy that comes out of something so simple as communicating, you gotta, you got some this shit you gotta work out. And only you know what it is. And it's we're not broken. If you're broken, we're all broken. You know what I mean? We're not broken. We're just mentally injured. Uh, okay. Elicitation is enhanced by non-judgmental listening and open-ended questioning. Questioning is helpful to the degree that it is free from hidden agendas and motivated by a sincere desire to understand. Nurturing questions make it easy for the child to share. They are typically easy to answer and do not feel intrusive or manipulative to the child. <laughs> Burped and hiccuped at the same time. Getting triggered all day. A child also needs copious amounts of praise, encouragement, and positive feedback for the verbal, emotional, and physical ways that she expresses herself. I will say I didn't get that all the time, but I did get that sometimes. And when I did get it, I ate that shit up. Her ability to talk, dance, sing, draw, play, perform, work, create, and problem solve needs appreciation if it is to grow and mature. That's why I'm posting videos of me playing the piano because I need someone to say good job, Christina. And thank you for saying that, guys, by the way. Verbal encouragement bolsters a child's willingness to take risks that are necessary for ongoing growth and development. Every child is born with natural self-confidence, but this confidence will not survive and grow without fertilization and care provided by positive verbal feedback. Instruction and guidance are also integral parts of good parenting. Parents have especially important roles as guides and teachers in the years before formal schooling, and failure in this regard is also verbal neglect. At the same time, it is important to note that it is possible to go to other extreme in teaching children. Parents must be careful not to damage their children's lightheartedness by overloading them with cognitive input and distorting them into precocious learning machines. Basically, like, if you don't get an A, fuck you, or whatever. You know, whatever, you know, and yeah, yeah, I'm just, you know, getting all these flashbacks. Children derive enormous benefit from non-doctrinaire verbal instruction. They have a tremendous need to talk about, think about, and understand the world around them. They have almost inexhaustible curiosity about the important whys and wherefores of life. When allowed to ask as many questions as they want, they often intuitively design their own program of expansive learning. Kids are smart, y'all. If parents take the time to simplify their language and use dialogue rather than lecture, they can satisfactorily answer almost any of our children's questions. And if they have the right encyclopedia, they may even be able to answer the proverbial, why is the sky blue? There is so much more important practical information that parents can share with their children about the world. Children need open discussion about the many complex, tax, complex tasks and processes necessary for developing into healthy adults. They need their parents' guidance around issues of time, money, yeah, values, morality, I got some of that, sex, didn't get none of that, and self-discipline. They need help dealing with their feelings, establishing their boundaries, claiming their basic human rights, and developing constructive ways to handle conflicts with others. I mean, raise your hand if you got all of those things. If anybody's raising their hand, honestly, wow. Generosity in talking with children is not a black and white issue. Parents do not have to be at the constant beck and call of their children. Well, that's good. Once the child has passed the helpless stage, parents need to have their own undisturbed private time. 
This matches the child's ongoing need to be able to do the same, to gradually learn more and more self-soothing and self-nurturing behaviors. Well, I didn't get none of that, so I just masturbated all the time. You know, that kind of clicked with me when one time I was in therapy and my therapist was like, I wonder how you soothed yourself when I was a little kid. And then it just cuts to me thinking of all those times I was humping my stuffed horse that I got for Christmas. And I was like, well, I know how I did it, but some things you just want to keep to yourself, huh? With the context of balance, parents can still make themselves liberally available for conversation with their children. That sounds nice. Okay, now let's get into healing. Verbal neglect. Oh. I want to try and make this 90 minutes. Let me just see. Oh, yeah. Okay. Not that much more. Uh, la, 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 la. If we have suffered prolonged verbal neglect in childhood, we may still be in need of some type of verbal nurturance described in the previous section. Some survivors are fortunate to have received this kind of nurturance through the loving interest of people outside their family. Considerable healing can happen when we have at least one friend or ally who consistently encourages our verbal self-expression and easily notices and points out what is good and special about us. I don't know why that makes me cry, but it just makes me cry because it's so nice. We, I have also observed many clients and friends making great gains in their verbal and emotional self-expression through attending meetings of the various 12-step programs currently proliferating across America. Codependents Anonymous and adult children of alcoholic or dysfunctional families. That's the one I do. Well, not anymore because COVID, but I do that. Hold regular meetings that are therapeutically helpful to many survivors. These meetings encourage authentic self-expression in a safe, supportive environment where survivors can discuss the details of their childhood abuse and neglect. Sharing one's story and hearing the stories of others powerfully ameliorates toxic shame. It also helps many survivors to further dissolve their denial and minimization. Yup. Uh, psychotherapy. Oh, this is a good section. This is a good point. Psychotherapy resuscitates, resuscitates, yeah, I said that word right, self-expression. Quote, Freud discovered that in the end, the main method of helping people to outgrow their buried emotional pasts and to free themselves for a new development of personality towards friendly, spontaneous, and creative living in the present was simply to leave the person entirely free to talk out whatever occurred to him. Harry Gundrip, psychoanalyst. Survivors usually feel that something very important is missing from their lives until they experience the healing effect of telling someone else the full unexpurgated story of their life. Oops, didn't look that up. Effective psychotherapy allows and encourages us to share our feelings and secrets, fears and embarrassments in a compassionate and accepting environment. The sense of well-being that comes from being fully heard feels so good, right and natural. Yes, it does. That most survivors eventually become motivated to seek such experiences elsewhere in their lives. Yep, like on a podcast. Therapy often comes to a natural conclusion when this type of experience comes more becomes more available in other intimate relationships. Also, um, my therapist raised her rates and she gave me an invoice and I was like, holy hell, I think I can only do this once a month. <laughs> Many survivors, however, require long-term therapy before they regain relatively full self-expression. The amount of time involved usually reflects the degree to which early verbal expression was neglected or actively thwarted. It sometimes takes years to experience enough trust to talk unashamedly, unashamedly about all aspects of personal experience. The liberation of verbal self-expression frequently precedes the reclaiming of feelings. And that's why, guys, when you e fucking email me. 
If you want to get stuff off your chest, email me. I'll fucking read it. <clears throat> email me. I might not reply, but I'll I'll read it. I read them. Because so, sometimes I, I read them while I'm like walking and stuff. And some of them are really heavy. But please know that I read them. It helps to get it off your chest. Or talk to a friend who you trust. Survivors need to be wary of therapists who haven't done sufficient recovery work around their own childhood and family origins of issues. Yeah, because we all know that person at the high school reunion that we go, wait, you became a therapist? Uh-oh. <laughs> it is a sad fact that few training programs require therapists to undergo their own therapy. Yeah, it is. Moreover... Many programs contain little or no emphasis on understanding the influence of childhood on behavior. When I state this to people I meet, they often look at me in disbelief. Yet the fact is that the dominant paradigm in psychotherapy today is the cognitive behavioral approach. As I, and I, we've talked about this a lot. The, this perspective over focuses on the present and future and often actively spurns the notion that an examination of the past is of any value. But it's like, you know, it goes both ways. You can't focus too much on childhood, I don't think. Like, you can't put all, you can't put all, you need balance and harmony, no matter what. So focus on all the stuff. But then take a break. Smoke a doobie if it's February or if you just need one, okay? Um, unfortunately, this has produced a shocking state of affairs in which many psychotherapists practice therapy without having adequately addressed their own childhood issues. Such therapists are prone to reparent their clients with the same dysfunctional style of parenting they themselves experienced. I've never, like I said, I've never experienced a therapist that's like that. I'd fucking run for the goddamn hills if I did, because that's something I talk about so I can recognize it pretty easily. Um... Okay, let's 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 read about an emotional neglect, and then we'll read about here here. Oh God, okay, 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 okay. Emotional neglect. For the most part, mental illness is caused by an absence of our def. <laughs> I'm gonna redo that quote because <laughs> I fucked it up. <laughs> Thank you for understanding. I'm not editing it out because I'm a real ass bitch. For the most part, mental illness is caused by an absence of or defect in the love that a particular child required from its particular parents for successful maturation and spiritual growth. M. Scott Peck, The Road Less Traveled. When parents are emotionally repressed, children are deprived of models for healthy emotional expression. Yeah, no shit! File that under. No shit, Sherlock! But sometimes you gotta say it. Many children never learn safe ways to show or convey tenderness, anger, enthusiasm, fear, sorrow, or love. Eventually, they use, lose access to their inborn ability to feel and emote. Feelinglessness, parents, cannot help but deprive their children of loving warmth and tenderness. And this absence of love is the most detrimental aspect of emotional neglect. Love is the most essential ingredient to healthy parenting. The failure to const constantly consistently rather express and radiate feelings of love towards children is grievous emotional neglect emotional neglect causes children to feel worthless unlovable and empty insufficient love creates a hunger that gnaws deeply at the center of their being and side note i feel like that's why a shitload of us have depression and why fucking antidepressants are prescribed like goddamn candy i'm not saying there's something wrong with you i'm not saying there's something wrong with the pill I'm saying if we get to the goddamn root of this, like actually, 
if your parents never beat the shit out of you, never molested you, never, I mean, cool. If, but, if, and if, quote, all they did was emotionally neglect you, you go, well, clearly my depression didn't come from childhood. Uh, think again, motherfucker. Think again. Emotional neglect causes children to feel, oh, yeah, worthless, unlovable, and empty. Insufficient love creates a hunger that gnaws deeply at the center of their being. Children who are unable to get love from their parents eventually seek relief from this hunger in all the wrong places. They are at great risk of using food, alcohol, or drugs as surrogates for love, or of using compulsive study, work, or busyness to distract them from the pain of lovelessness. They are also highly susceptible to entering love relationships with people as incapable of love as their parents. Well, that hurt. Emotional neglect is especially difficult to comprehend for those adult children who are frequently told in emotional empty words, of course we love you. If the phrase I love you is never sustained, substantiated by a loving emotional state in the parent, it cannot meet the child's needs to be loved. I love you could be uttered a million times with absolutely no benefit if the emotions, actions, and communications of the parent are not truly loving. Emotional love is a feeling that cannot be directly perceived or measured. Because of this, many of, many of us use denial and minimization to dismiss or devalue its importance. Yet when love is truly felt, it is as real as the smell of jasmine and the taste of honey. In fact, when love is fully felt or emoted, it is so palpable that it is almost hyper-real. Love adds richness and meaning to life as nothing else can. For the infant child, love is as essential as food for the maintenance of life and growth. Many survivors suffer intense, intensely from a lack of love without knowing what it is knowing that it is lovelessness that caused them so much pain. Some of us reside incessantly in this pain because we were forced to give up on intimacy so early in life. It is gravely important that we comprehend the immeasurable loss of such relinquishment. I just need a moment. Okay, I'm good. Loving connection with others is our emotional lifeblood, and without it, few of us are able to really value our lives. Many of us do not discover our yearning for the, ma uh, for the mana of intimacy, I don't know what that word is, until we open our grieving or are graced with at least one truly loving friend or ally. <sighs> Mirroring. Out of this will come a person who is going to have a good image of herself. Someone who will be able to walk into rooms without undue shyness believe that other people like her accept praise for her work as due and smile at the nice reflection of herself in other people's eyes just as she smiles back at what she sees in the mirror. Nancy Friday. That's a great name, Nancy Friday. My mom's name is Nancy. God damn it! The strongest channel for conveying love to an infant is an emotional one. Infants prosper when warm and tender heart-to-heart -heart connections with their parents. When parents emote love, their infants are filled with feelings of peace, safety, and well-being. Real love often makes them smile and coo with delight. Oh, yeah. Infants quickly learn to associate parental love with the smiling, appreciative facial expressions of their parents. When infants or young children gaze into their parents' eyes, it is as if they are looking to find a pleasing picture of themselves reflected there. 
Therapists call this mirroring, and children can actually see a mirror-like reflection of themselves in the pupils of their parents' eyes in the right light and at the right distance. You can test this for yourself by looking for your reflection in a friend's pupils from about 12 inches away. Mirroring also refers to the overall, well, six feet rule unless you're quarantined together. (laughs) Mirroring also refers to the overall impression that parents reflect to their children. When they look at their children, they can reflect back either a positive or negative image. If children see displeasure in their parents' expressions, it is as if they themselves are displeasing. If instead they see delight and love, it as if they themselves are delightful and lovable. Smiles, hugs, lap time, tender touch, melodic tone of voice, and greetings of welcome are the nature, natural physical manifestations of loving feelings. Aw. These signals soothe children and convey to them living proof that they are lovable. <sighs> Why am I crying? Okay, I'm ready. They found the very foundation of self-esteem, as well as its basic structure, is cemented with ongoing experiences of feeling parental love. Children are able to feel good about themselves to the degree that they have warm, relatively constant, loving connections with their parents. Constant! You hear that? Parents, of course, cannot feel or act lovingly all the time. Nonetheless, responsible parents emotionally feed their children with generous amounts of loving gestures that are at least sometimes accompanied by genuine love and acceptance. Failure to thrive. (sighs) Totally dependent and totally at the mercy of its parents for all forms of sustenance and means of survival. To the child, abandonment by its parents is the equivalent of death. Scott Peck. Anyone who has taken a course in basic psychology has probably seen the poignant film of Harlow's experiment with baby monkeys. Oh, this is the fucking monkey experiment I talked about. It is this awful experiment. In in this awful experiment, baby monkeys are raised without real mothers. They are instead provided with two different surrogate mothers. One artificial mother is made of wire and has a nipple that dispenses milk. The other is made of soft, cuddly material but provides no milk. In one part of this experiment, baby monkeys invariably turn to the soft mothers for sleep and comfort, even though they get all their food from the wire mothers. In another part of the experiment, baby monkeys were raised only with wire mothers do not survive. The baby monkeys raised only with the wire mothers do not survive, even though they were given the milk. Human babies have the same need for the softness, affection, and touch of a loving parent. Babies who are not consistently picked up and cuddled sometimes die. Oh, God. The role of lack of touch in infant mortality has been well documented in many orphanages and pediatric hospitals. This fatal syndrome is known as failure to thrive. Oh, my God, that's sad. Failure to thrive. Should I title it that or is that too sad? Maybe it'll remind you to thrive. I'm writing it down. Failure to thrive is is not an all-or-nothing issue, however. Only extreme cases of emotional and tactile neglect lead to physical death. Less extreme instances of emotional deprivation may still cause serious consequences. The child's body and mind may develop normally, but his spirit and soul may atrophy. In, other, in our culture, so many of us are raised on famine-like rations of love that few of us thrive spiritually or emotionally. I mean, you could say that 12 times fast and it'll still be true. Is that how the saying goes? Uh, Healing emotional neglect. 
Developing a loving, heart-centered connection with oneself is an essential process of recovery. Many of us who suffered ongoing rejection from our parents initially find this proposition inconceivable. But I believe that almost everyone can learn to give themselves the love they need and deserve. In the early stages of recovery, survivors sometimes need a great deal of modeling and nurturing from others to regenerate, regerminate, excuse me, the seed of self-compassion and keep it growing and developing. Some survivors are lucky enough to get this from authentically loving friends and allies. Yeah, friends are the best. Others, those who are not so fortunate, may need to work with a heart-centered psychotherapist. Survivors who are constantly neglected or abused may require years of therapy before they are able to begin to get that they are indeed lovable. Therapists who help their clients rediscover their lovableness are usually those who naturally proffer Galway Kinnell's poetic sentiment. The bud stands for all things, even those that don't flower, because everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. Aww. To put a hand on its brow and retell it in words and in heart. It is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. Oh, that's really nice. That's really nice. It has been professionally taboo for many years for therapists to talk about loving their clients. As at long last, more and more therapists are becoming, uh, are coming to believe that love is the most essential healing ingredient for the therapeutic process. I'm glad he said that because honestly, the last two therapists I have, the one I'm working with currently, and the, oh God, Orna, this is the name of the lady that I was working with, but she retired. I felt like she was my mom. God, I'm crying just thinking about leaving her, even though I already left her two goddamn years ago. But I loved her, for sure. Carl, and my current therapist I love. We don't, you know, I feel like you can't just throw in, a, throw in the word love out. Like, you can't, if you, you can love someone that you don't know that well. You know what I mean? Like, just, I don't really think there's any such thing as just throwing around the word love. I mean, I guess, unless you do. I just When I throw it around, though, I really mean it. It's just weird to say you love someone that you don't really know that much about. <laughs> but you love what they've done for you. Carl Rogers, the pioneer of, uh, and perhaps most influential voice of humanistic psychology, used the term unconditional positive regard to describe love, which he regarded as the most important principle of therapeutic healing. And renowned psychiatrist M. Scott Peck strongly embraces Jung's position on the following statement from The Road Less Traveled. Quote, it is no more inappropriate for a psychotherapist to have feelings of love for a patient than it is for a good parent to have feelings of love for a child. That's true. To the contrary, it is essential for the therapist to love the patient for therapy to be successful. And there is nothing inappropriate about patients coming to love a therapist who truly listens to them hour after hour in not a non-judgmental way, who truly accepts them as they probably have never been accepted before, who totally, this is exactly how I feel about Orna, who totally refrains from using them and who has been helpful in alleviating their suffering. So that the patient can experience a successful love relationship, often for the first time. God damn it, Kevin. You know, you think you're healed, and then you just cry, cry, cry. <laughs> oh, God. Orna. She was so great. Uh, okay, so let's see. What else am I going to read? Uh, okay. This is the last thing. That was the last thing. Thank you for thank you for lending your time. Two more pages. 
we got two more pages. Whew, are you okay? Hope you're okay. This is under the section, grieving as a spiritual practice. Many people have their first numinous experience through a spiritual practice based on prayer or meditation. Others, like myself, experience numinous openings through grieving. Grieving can stimulate a profoundly moving opening to an authentic interconnection with the divine. As grieving naturally promotes the rebirth of aspects of ourselves lost in childhood, the greatest of these rebirths is the rebirth of a sense of spiritual belonging. My most powerful, numinous experiences have been grief-inspired. They have momentarily expanded my consciousness in ways that have made my life's painful contradictions and inconsistencies bearable and understandable. They have allowed me to appreciate the necessary interdependence of life and death, joy and pain, achievement and failure, love and loneliness, meaningfulness and confusion. They have revived me from some of my most devastating life experiences and restored me to a certainty that life is still the most magnificent of gifts, even though it is also liberally punctuated with periods of pain and suffering. That's a good way to put it. That's a good way to say hell on earth, huh? (laughs) On many occasions, grieving has brought me to the kind of transcendence delivered, uh, deliverance described by Tagore. It's either that or Tagore. Quote, I thought that my voyage had come to its end at the last limits of my power, that the path before me was closed, that provisions were exhausted, and the time, co- the time come to sh- take shelter in silent obscurity. But I find thy will knows no end in me. Oh, thy will. <laughs> I can't read poetry, guys. <laughs> uh, thy will knows no end in me. And when old worlds die out on the tongue, new melodies break forth from the heart. And where the old tracks are lost, new country is revealed in its wonder. Along with the love and peace and beauty, God made pain and loss and suffering. And hey, whatever you believe, you believe and I respect that. I definitely, when, when a lot of people say God, like when he says God in this book personally, I, I, I use that, I use the universe as the term to describe exactly what he's describing. So believe whatever feels good for you. Our ability to fully appreciate life depends on our willingness to sometimes feel sad and angry about our own and others' misfortunes and difficulties. The tools of grieving are gifts from God that enable us to integrate and grow from life's inexorable hardships. Hopefully I pronounced that right, but we'll see. And then to return to gratitude for its wonders. On numerous occasions, I have felt as if grieving cleansed my heart and psyche and restored me to an appreciation of the miracles of God's creations. At such times, grieving made real the words of Emily Dickinson, quote, nature, the gentlest mother, is impatient of no child. That's a good ass quote, Emily Dickinson. And what breathtaking beauty and intricacy exists in the world of nature. What a wealth of species, ecosystems, landscapes, and panoramas there is to discover and enjoy. What a wonder it is to be in a body that can feel the warmth of the sun, the cool of the breeze, and the sweet tenderness of a lover's kiss. That sounds nice. What a privilege to be able to stroll and walk about the wild and open places. The the Navajo prayer night way reminds us of this. Quote, through the returning seasons, may I walk. In, my, in beauty, may I walk. All day long, may I walk. 
Beauty will I possess again. Beautiful birds, beautiful, joyful birds. On the trail marked with pollen, may I walk. With grasshoppers about my feet, may I walk. With dew about my feet, may I walk. With beauty before me, may I walk. With beauty behind me, may I walk. With beauty above me, may I walk. With beauty all around me, may I walk. In old age, wandering on a trail of beauty, lively, may I walk. Grieving has also moved me to notice the spiritual beauty of many other human beings. How miraculous that many of us can at times be deeply caring and loving despite our own woundedness. And grieving has invariably healed me from the despair of feeling brokenhearted by a friend or lover's momentary betrayal or abandonment and restored me once again to the most precious gift of all, full, authentic, loving connection with another. Or with Kevin. When we recover our bodily-based spirituality, we regain all the grace, strength, and guidance that we need to have an enduring love affair with life. A, spiritually, a spirituality that is based in reality gradually decreases the despair of the abused and abandoned inner child and replaces it with a sense of hope and meaning. Ralph Metzner, psychotherapist and professor of consciousness studies, testifies to this. Quote, out of, all, out of the turmoil and darkness of dying comes the sparkling vitality of the newborn self. This new self is connected to the eternal source of all life, the source from which we all derive, the divine essence within. It is therefore aptly named the eternal child. The spirituality that unfolds from grieving naturally enhances the process of rediscovering and reparenting our inner child. Reparenting, the subject of the next chapter, is a powerful tool for aiding our recovery from the verbal, emotional, spiritual abuse and neglect described in this chapter. Oops. And with that, the portrait of me fell down off the wall in that goddamn metaphor. Guys, I hope you liked today's episode. It was a long one, but I think it was necessary. We laughed, we cried, we farted, and we drank coffee. Um... I love you. I hope you're doing well. Keep sending me the voice memos if you want. Just talking about moments in your life that were painful. Um, at the end of Feel Your Feelings January, I'm going to release them separately as a separate episode, on, probably on a separate day. But I, it's, you know, when, when he described in the adult children of alcoholic or dysfunctional family meetings, sometimes just hearing somebody and then also saying our own story is one of the most healing things. And what? how wonderful is it that something that simple can be that helpful, right? So you can keep sending me them, uh, the Voices in Our Heads podcast at gmail.com. If you would not mind rating and reviewing this, if you have not already, I would really appreciate it. There's a lot of fucking five-star reviews. But I don't think I'm on the top 200 iTunes comedy charts. And I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> that's not what matters in life guys what matters in life is love and children are our future so please enjoy this song from one of the greatest artists of our time Whitney Houston I love you congrats on not killing yourself I will talk to you next Wednesday I believe the children are our future teach them well and let them lead the way show them all the beauty they possess inside give them a sense Try to make it easier Let the children's laughter Remind us how we used to be 
Everybody's searching for a hero People need someone to look up to I never found anyone who fulfilled my needs A lonely place to be And so I learned to depend on me Children are our future. Teach them well and let.